Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Today we enter into the final uh, large section in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That, that section goes from Ephesians 6, verse 10 to verse 20. And then once we get through this section, all that's left are the final greetings. And it will take us a few weeks to, to get through it. And, uh, you know, looking at those 11 verses, knowing that, you know, it's only going to take us a few weeks to get through them. Um, unlike whenever David Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 26 sermons on just verses 10 to 13. And, uh, and so you may be thinking, well, Richard, you must be skipping some things. Well, I understand uh, why you would think that. And if you're looking for some summer reading, you can always pick up uh, William Gurnell's classic 17th century work titled The Christian in Complete Armor. And uh, it's so complete and thorough that it's around 1,200 pages. And so you can certainly you know, dive in. But I think you'll find that these 11 verses are worthy of the time we dedicate to them. And if you're looking at the text with the, in the ESV translation, you'll see the heading above this section is the whole armor of God. And so for the next few weeks, we'll be learning first about spiritual warfare and our great enemy, the devil, and this call to, to put on the whole, the full armor of God. Now, before we look at verses 10, 11, and 12, I do want to, to say a few things up front about some of the various views about spiritual warfare, because um, I think that it's helpful to kind of give us the right, the right attitude and mindset and posture as we come to this passage. And so, uh, essentially, there, are, there have been three views of spiritual warfare that have developed over the years. Two of these views are relatively recent, uh, developing in the, uh, the 20th century, and I think both of those views are problematic, but I want to say a little bit about both of them because um, the chances are that, that, that at least one of them has had and maybe even still has some impact on how you view Ephesians chapter 6. And so, first, in the 20th century, there was a view of spiritual warfare where the emphasis was placed on fighting against and resisting oppressive political and socioeconomic powers in society. And so spiritual was reinterpreted to be referring to you know, political and socioeconomic powers. Well, I, you know, from my perspective, that view was never over, overwhelmingly accepted. But, but I, I also think it's pretty clear from what Paul says in Ephesians 6 that's not what he has in mind. Yes, there are evil and wicked governments and regimes and political influences, but that's not what Paul's talking about when he's talking about spiritual forces and, the, and, and dark forces, spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. The second view, which also arose in the 20th century uh, through the birth and expansion of the Pentecostal movement, um, is a little more um, widely known and accepted. And in keeping with Pentecostalism, this view has a strong emphasis on supernatural experience and experiences. You know, with this emphasis, there was a, a, a noticeable shift away from spiritual warfare being primarily about our own personal fight for holiness and primarily fighting against our own sin and moving to an offensive attack against evil spirits as we wage war in a cosmic battle. See, this, this new theology of spiritual warfare, it's been widespread both in its acceptance and in its scope. But as we see in today's text, Paul's not calling us 
to go on the offensive and for us to begin to look for demons to cast out and to exercise and not look for demonic attachments to, to defeat and to throw off and, 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 or any other various you know, made-up terms and categories, that the call in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20, is it's much more straightforward. It's much more ordinary, and it looks a whole lot like Christian discipleship. It's a call to, to trust God's Word, that it is absolutely true and is given to us in love for our good. To trust his promises and his assurances. To pray. In fact, we see the call here to stand, to wrestle, to put on the whole armor, the full armor of God, and to pray. So let me read this quote from theologian Peter Aiken, and I think it highlights the third view, which I think is the helpful, faithful view to help orient us as we come to this text. He says, in the classic perspective on spiritual warfare, promoted by the Reformers and the Puritans, there was a spiritual battle, but it focused on the reality of needing to stand firm on the truth of God's Word in a world where Satan seeks to tempt, distract, discourage, and dissuade believers from living a life of holiness. Believers should consider what the Bible teaches about the reality of Satan and of his attacks, but their focus is not in dealing with demons— it's on the truth that Christ has gained victory over Satan at the cross and believers respond by resisting Satan and opposing Satan by the word and prayer. The greatest weapon that the church possesses is the word of God proclaimed in the fullness of the spirit. Only the gospel is said to be the power of God unto salvation and the weapon that Satan dreads the most. May we reclaim this truth of scripture and be fully equipped in God's armor to resist the schemes of of Satan. And so with that in mind, you know, we begin this section looking at Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at these three verses under three headings. We're going to see the battle. We're going to ask, hey, what do we need in this battle? And then thirdly, we'll look at the enemy. So the battle, what we need for the battle, and then look at the enemy. And so looking at verses 10, 11, and 12 as a whole, we see that verse 10 begins with the word finally. It could also be translated as for the remaining time, or for the remaining time you have in this life until Jesus returns, until he returns to bring about the, the final consummation of his ultimate victory over Satan. But until that day comes, you're in a battle. And the first thing we see about this battle is that it's real. right? The world in which we live, it's, it's not a theme park. It's not a vacation result, resort. The four Christians, it's a battleground. And remember the context we've been in in Ephesians, that Paul's just finished addressing the topics of marriage and parenting and workplace relationships. 
See, this battle is real. It's as real as your marriage and your parent-child relationships, your friendships, your office relationships. In fact, these areas of your life, of my life, are the, the battlegrounds for this war. So brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be surprised whenever you face opposition, whenever things are hard, whenever things are challenging in these relationships, because we are in fact in a battle and it's very real. Pastor John MacArthur says, the true Christian described in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, who lives the faithful life described in Ephesians 4 through 6, chapter 6, verse 9, what we just finished covering, can be sure that he or she will be involved in the spiritual warfare described in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. The faithful Christian life is a battle. It's warfare on a grand scale because when God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. So think about this. I mean, do, do you know, do you really know that you are in a battle? And do, I mean, do, do you pray like it? I mean, what if we, what if we really began to, to understand this and to embrace it and to live like it? How, how would that change the way we pray? How would it change the way we read the scriptures? The way we listen to sermons? How would it change the, the priority that we place on gathering with God's people each and every Lord's Day? So there's a battle, and the first thing to see the battle is real. The second thing is the battle is personal. Okay, look at verse 12. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to look at verse 12 first, then we'll go back to verses 10 and 11. In verse 12, we see, for we do not wrestle. And that, that Greek word translated wrestle, it means hand-to-hand, foot-to-foot combat, grappling, wrestling. There's an emphasis on how this spiritual battle, it's, it's personal. It's up close and personal. It's not a battle that, that, we, that we fight somewhere far off in some distant land rather we fight it every day each and every day in our daily lives in our marriages in our families in our homes in our friendships in the classroom in the office even in the church and if you're anything like me and I'm willing to bet that you are more like me than not or I'm more like you than not then your and my greatest areas of failure and our greatest areas of inconsistency are in the ordinary, mundane opportunities and disagreements of marriage, family life, and friendship. That's where Satan attacks. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, wherever grace brings advance and victory, attacks will come. It's in the ordinary progress of sanctification that the devil seeks to defeat us, it's in daily routines that we need to make sure he gains no foothold. Mundane life, not just mountaintop experience, is the sphere in which Satan appears. This was where Satan first successfully attacked. It was not when Adam and Eve were attempting extraordinary spiritual work for God, but when everything seemed mundane, that Satan tracked them down and tripped them up. In fact, their marriage, which was the best of all God's basic provisions for them, became the strongest instrument Satan could use to set them at odds against God and each other. And so the battle is real, it's up close and personal, it's this hand-to-hand wrestling and grappling, and it's raging in our homes and in our friendships, and even in the church. 
So we see this battle is real, it's personal. Thirdly, it's, it's spiritual. And so look again at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In our lives, we know that you don't have to, I don't have to tell you this, you know this, that we face many challenges, obstacles, and much opposition in trying to live the Christian life, in our discipleship. Right? The Christian life's a battle, it's a struggle, it's hard for a variety of reasons. I mean, of course, there's our own sin and us making things hard on ourselves, even though we know that, you know, that sin never makes things better. Right? We know that. Right? We know that sin never takes us where we want to go. We know that sin is always far more costly than we expected it to be, that it never delivers on its promises. But there's our own sin. There's the obstacles and the opposition that comes into our lives from other people and, and their sin. That makes life hard. Right? Even, even within the church, right? Every church. I don't know if you realize, but every church is full of sinners. I'm not sure you knew that, okay? But that's, that's the truth. Now, by the grace of God, we're sinners who've been saved by God's grace, and we're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit through the Word. But, you know, th there's no perfect church, because as soon as one of us joins it, then, you know, there goes the perfection. There's also the, the current or the flow of the world. It's against us. I mean, if you commit to living faithfully as a Christian in this world, you're going to find opposition. You know, I, I once heard this definition of worldliness, and I think it's very helpful. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal. And righteousness, faithfulness, obedience looks odd, weird, bizarre. So there's our sin, there's other sin, there's the world. All are very real opposition, very real obstacles for the Christian. But look again at verse 12 and notice what Paul highlights is our great opposition and enemy. The battle's not against flesh and blood. Though there are evil people in the world and in our lives, but in an ultimate sense, our battle is a spiritual battle, a very real spiritual battle against a very real devil and his minions. As I said at the beginning, I don't think the list in verse 12 is referring to unjust, evil, ungodly, earthly political regimes and governments. Rather, I think this list is, um, is meant to tell us something about the, the organization and the structure and the, the intentionality of the devil and his schemes. I like the way Pastor Ian Hamilton puts it. He says, Paul is highlighting the organized, structured, powerful, and malignant opposition that is provoked by the devil against God's church. And so you look again at verse 12. The work of the devil is, is present and active, organized, evil, dark. Right? Sin, sin loves the darkness. There's this battle, we're talking about spiritual warfare, this battle between light and darkness. And sin, sin loves the darkness. Think about the way the, the Gospel of John begins in John 1, verses 4 and 5. That in him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Satan and sin love the darkness. 
You know, whenever we choose darkness over light, whenever we choose the darkness of Satan's lies over the, the light of the truth of God's word, then we enter into this, this present darkness where, where Satan rules and reigns and wages his attacks. And if you look again at verse 12, you notice that last phrase, in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms. So th there's spiritual warfare that, that's impacting our daily lives, but it's also happening in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson describes it. The battle is fought in the heavenly realms, the sphere into which we have been brought through our election and union to Christ. To live in this atmosphere is to be brought into the center of a conflict zone. This is the context in which the whole Bible from Genesis 3.15 onwards is set. Right, Genesis 3.15, there the, the, in the Garden of Eden, after our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin. God promises there's going to be an offspring of the woman, a coming Savior, promise of Christ who was to come, that though his heel will be bruised, he's going to crush the serpent's head. So from the promise of that promise from Genesis 3.15 onwards, there's the ongoing warfare between the Lord and the serpent. Or put another way, this battle, which is real, it's personal, it's spiritual, is fought in the heavenly places and... It impacts our everyday, ordinary, mundane, daily routines, relationships, marriages, families, friendships, workplace, church relationships. You see, Satan and his spiritual forces of evil hate everything that God has done. They hate everything God's doing in the world, in the church, in your life, in your family. I mean, think about all the things that we've learned um, so far in Ephesians, all that God has done and is doing for his people, in his people, in the church, for his glory, Satan, Satan hates all of it. He wants to undo all of it. it. Listen to this summary of really what we've learned so far, especially a summary of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 that theologian John Stott gives. He asks, is God's plan to create a new society? We know that it is from Ephesians. Then they, the devil and his army, will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls, dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? We know the answer is yes. That that's exactly what God's doing, bring, making one new man out of the two, Jews and non-Jews, together in Christ. Well, then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild the walls. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? We know the answer is yes. Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. And then we, we can add more to this list, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a husband trying to love your wife, if you're a wife who's trying to respect and follow and encourage your husband, then you, you have to know that Satan hates your marriage. He hates your marriage and he wants to ruin it. If, if you're a child trying to obey and honor your father and mother, if you're a parent trying to lead your children with understanding and grace and patience and tenderness, know that Satan hates harmonious, peaceful, loving families. He wants to sow seeds of rebellion, harshness, overreactions. You know, are you trying to be a faithful Christian in your career? Are you trying to live with integrity and respect and kindness as you work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord? 
Well, Satan hates what you're trying to do. And he would love nothing more than to ruin you, to, to corrupt you, to turn you to his present darkness. So the battle, it's real, it's personal, it's spiritual. The second heading is, well, what is it that we need for the battle? We see there's two things, one in verse 10, one in verse 11. First, we see in verse 10 that we need to be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, so don't, don't miss this. We are to be strong in this battle, but we're to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That we, could, we, we cannot, we should not, we must not rely on our own strength and our own resources and our own abilities and our own wisdom to battle against and defeat Satan. You know, as at the, I don't use pop culture um, illustrations very often. Um, one, I'm not very good at them. I'm not super cool myself. And, and this one I'm about to use uh, is, is so old that I don't think it even qualifies as pop culture. But I think it's helpful here. As Clint Eastwood's character, Dirty Harry, put it, a man's got to know his limitations. That we need to know our limitations. That we are limited in and of ourselves. Therefore, Ephesians 6 verse 10 is not a call to somehow muster up your courage and your strength for the fight. I mean, look again at verse 10. We must be strong, but in the Lord, not in ourselves. But be strong in the Lord. And Paul's point is that we can be strong in the Lord. And we can be strong in the strength of his might. See, Paul's reminding us of all that is now ours in Christ. All that's ours in Christ. That in Christ, the one who has conquered all his and our enemies through his righteous life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. In Christ, we, you, find all of the strength, all of the power, all of the resources needed to enable us to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so, I mean, do, the question is, do we know that? Do you know that? Do you know that you, dear believer, you're in Christ, united to Christ, one with him. His life is your life. His strength is your strength. His power is your power. And his strength, his power is always, always, always more than sufficient for this battle. Always. I mean, think about how Paul closed Ephesians chapter 1 in his prayer as he's praying that we would know the immeasurably greatness, the great power of Christ towards us who believe. Listen to what we read in Ephesians 1 verses 19 to 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, and don't miss, dear Christian, that ultimately the battle with Satan has already been won. It's already been won by Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as you read in Hebrews 2 verse 14, that through death he, Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. But ultimately, Satan has been defeated. He's been defeated by Christ's accomplished work, his life, death, resurrection. But we still await the full and final consummation of Christ's cosmic victory at his second coming and final judgment. And in the meantime, Paul says that we are, in Ephesians 6.10, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, in Christ's might. Martin Luther illustrates this, I think, verse 2 of his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, whenever he wrote, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, you ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle, and he has. Therefore, we can stand and we must stand in, the, in, this, in his strength, in the, the strength of his might. That we're in a real personal spiritual battle each and every day. Therefore, we, we must utterly depend on the Lord and the strength he provides. We must fix our eyes on Christ and, and stand strong in the immeasurable greatness of his power. As we stand firm, as we, as we wrestle and as we pray and as we, we put on the whole full armor of God. As we do it each and every day, each and every day. Husbands, wives, before each and every date with your spouse, before every encounter with your children, before you even leave the driveway to head into work. I know it's too late today, but before you even get into the car to come to church, Right? What, what is it that we need for the battle? We need to be strong in the Lord each and every day. Second, we see that we need to put on the whole armor of God. We see that in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we're going to have time to look at all the various aspects of the whole armor of God in the weeks to come. But, but I want to quickly say part of our dependence on Christ and our responsibility is to put on the the whole, the full armor that God has provided for us so that we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're to take up and put on the whole, the full armor of God by faith. By faith that believes God's word is absolutely true. That it really is given to us in love for our good. Faith that believes and clings to, trusts God's promises and his blessings and the assurances that we read in his word. You see, and the idea in verse 11 is that once a Christian puts on the, the full, the whole armor of God, you know, we never take it off, right? It's not like a, like a football helmet and shoulder pads that you only need whenever you're playing the game, right? It'd be weird if you wore them around when you're not playing the game. But we need the full armor of God 24-7, 365 days a year. It is to be our, our lifelong, everyday, all-day wardrobe. We're going to return to the whole armor of God next week, but here's one more quote from Sinclair Ferguson. Paul urges us to put on the whole armor of God, leave nothing to chance, no aspect of your life exposed and vulnerable. What does he mean? 
simply this. To be strong in the Lord, we need to take the whole Christ. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, friend and master, sovereign and companion, and do so without reservation. Part armor will not adequately protect us. A part Christ will neither save nor keep us. And praise God, we have a whole Christ. We need to stand. What do we need for the battle? We need to stand in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And that brings us to this third heading, the enemy. The devil. Who's his great enemy? It's the devil. I know I don't have time at the end of a long sermon to be exhaustive on this topic, but it is important we think a little bit about the devil and his schemes. And I want to begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. I think this is helpful. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, just pretend they don't exist. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So don't do either one of those. Stay out of both of those ditches. But we need to realize that the devil, though, though dangerous and exceedingly wicked and evil, is still only a created being. He's a powerful adversary, but the devil is not in any way equal with God. He's not equal with God in power. He's not equal with God in authority. I mean, so, so don't think of this battle between, this spiritual warfare, this battle between God and Satan, like, like a heavyweight boxing match where God's in this corner, Satan's in this corner, and we're really not sure who's going to win. Really not sure who's going to knock the other one out. You see, the, the devil is not in any way equal with God. Satan's not the, the spiritual counterpart to God. God is God. God alone. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. He can only do what God permits him to do. God is omnipresent. Everywhere at once, Satan is not. God is omniscient, knows all things. Satan does not. And remember, again, ultimately God has won the battle. Christ has defeated Satan's sin and death itself. But the devil is still dangerous. He still has his schemes, as you read about in verse 11. Well, what are the devil's schemes? They really are, I think, far more seductive but also far more simple and straightforward than many of us realize. So we need to think about them. You know, about 300 years ago, Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and I recommend that book. I recommend it. It's probably a book worth reading once a year. But in the introduction to the book, he says, Christ, the Scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should, first, should, should be first and most studied and searched if any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here or happy hereafter. It's my work as a Christian, but much more as I am a watchman, to do my best to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver. You see, Satan's a schemer. Deceiver. He has the snares. We need to be familiar with them. I mean, I mean think, back, think back to the Garden of Eden. When the serpent first came up to our first parents, Adam and Eve, he didn't come up in a direct way and say, listen, I hate God, I hate you, I am here to ruin your relationship with God and to ruin your life, and I want you to follow me. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, he asks, did God actually say, you know, 
are you guys sure that you heard? I mean, listen, I'm not saying don't listen to God, but did you hear God correctly? Are you sure that's what God said? Did God actually say? See, he sows seeds of doubts. Genesis 3 describes him as crafty. In Ephesians 6, Paul says he has schemes. In 2 Timothy 2, he has snares. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he masquerades as an angel of light. In John 8, Jesus says he's a liar and the father of lies. So craftiness, schemes, snares, masquerades, lies, distortion, deception, destruction. Can't think of another word that sounds like those, but Satan trades in all of these things. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says, ultimately the devil wants you and I to join him in his rebellion against God. He hates God. He hates all that God is, all the light in which God dwells. He hates everything that's holy, everything that's pure, everything in Christ he hates, and he wants to make traitors out of us. He wants us to give up the fight, side with the enemy, turn from God's way, turn to his ways. The devil hates all your blessings in Christ. He hates all the power you have in Christ. He hates all the grace you have in Christ. He hates the unity that we have in the church in Christ. He hates the gospel of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. He hates holiness in Christ. He hates everything in this letter to the Ephesians that Paul's been talking about. That is his strategy. And his schemes are far more seductive and yet far more simple and straightforward than many of us realize. I want to give you three of them. Three short passages. I want to try to illustrate this. It's obviously not an exhaustive list of the devil's schemes, but I think it is eye-opening just how common and how simple and yet how seductive and how damaging these schemes are. One of them is we covered uh, you know, months ago. It was in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. One of the devil's schemes is he wants you to be angry and not get over it, not be reconciled, not go and talk things out, not clear things up, not ask for forgiveness, not extend forgiveness. See, and Paul warns against this scheme, this snare about giving the devil an opportunity, or in some translations say a foothold in your life, in your heart, in your relationships. See, Satan loves it whenever we're angry, and our anger smolders and festers and metastasizes. He loves it when minor offenses, minor misunderstandings, simple disagreements grow into major battles. He loves it whenever you never forget and you never forgive, even if the offense was exaggerated in your own mind, even if it was imagined in some way, even if it was assumed. I shared this quote with you um, months ago, but of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun for a time. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last, last twosome morsel, both the pain you were given and the pain you're giving back. In some ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at that feast is you. So Satan would love for you to be angry. Let it smolder. Let it grow. What Paul says here is don't encourage it. Don't feed it. Keep short accounts. Be reconciled to one another. 
forgive one another. Because that's the second, that's the second common, ordinary, but yet very seductive, very effective scheme. That Satan wants you just to be angry. He wants you angry. And he also wants you to be unforgiving. He wants you to be graceless. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. His designs, his schemes, his tricks, is that you be angry, you be unforgiving. He doesn't want you to ever forgive one another. He doesn't want you to extend grace. He wants you to keep a long, 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 detailed record of all wrongs and thereby poison your relationships, poison your own heart and your own soul. He wants you angry. He wants you unforgiving. He also wants you to be prideful. He wants to puff you up. And once he does, he has you in his snare. Think about what we read in 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7, the qualifications for an elder. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Think about how simple and ordinary and human these snares are, and yet how, how they are seductive. They're powerful. And we just step right into them. He wants us angry and unforgiving. He wants us proud. He wants to use his schemes and his snares and his lies to to puff us up, to make us feel like, you know what, we're self-righteous. I don't don't have a speck in my eye. There's nothing for me to look at for myself. There's no reason for me to ever forgive you, forgive you. He wants to get us angry at one another, angry at God, to refuse to forgive, to be resentful, graceless in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships. Puritan William Bridge says, Satan will tell us a hundred true things in order to get us to listen to the 101st thing he says, the lie by which he traps us. See, Satan wants you to doubt that God's word is reliable and true, and given to you in love for your good. He wants you to doubt God's character, and his goodness, and his generosity, and his faithfulness, and his promises to you. See, Satan wants to destroy your enjoyment of God, and your enjoyment of your blessings in Christ. That he wants to destroy fellowship, and unity, and harmony, and peace within the church. And so, so what, what can we do? What, what, what can we do? Listen again to our passage one last time. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, one of the most precious promises in the Bible that I fear too, too few Christians know about is Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I mean, what what a precious promise. And and reminder, right, of this this promise from Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman who was going to come, crush the serpent's head, that he's already accomplished on our behalf this 
crushing of the Satan in his work of salvation. He's crushed, defeated Satan, defeated Satan's sin and death. And we, relying on Christ's strength, we can be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And we can put on the whole armor of God and we can trust God's word and we can pray with faithfulness and we can stand against the schemes of the devil day after day after day in faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do not desire to confide in our own strength for we know that to do so would mean that our striving would be losing. And we praise you that the right man, our Savior Jesus Christ, is on our side. That he must win the battle, he has won the battle. Lord, please enable us to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.